attention we'll get going. apologize uh, for a little de delay. I think you all know that uh, our speaker today is doing some pretty important things on the other side of town. And we're happy to have him. <clears throat> My name is Spencer Abraham and I am a director of the Federal Society and on behalf of the Society I'd just like to welcome you all here to what is our fifth annual Lawyers Convention. This one on individual responsibility in the law. Our society, as I think most of you know, is an organization of conservative and libertarian lawyers, law students, faculty, and others interested in the law and dedicated to the principles of limited government, separation of powers, and the rule of law, traditional values, and individual freedom. I'm happy to report that uh, we now have chapters in over 35 cities for lawyers and around 110 law school campuses, which represents about two-thirds of the uh, law schools in this country. And for the many of you who've been involved with the organization since its inception, I think you're as proud as all of us at the great growth uh, and expansion that we have enjoyed. Our conference this weekend is designed to explore how major legal developments affect individual responsibility. And over the next two days, six panels of distinguished speakers will focus on this question in the context of torts and contracts, bankruptcy, criminal law, entitlements, family law, and mandatory pro bono. We think you'll find these panels very interesting and on point as well as professionally relevant. As you know, we meet here this week during a momentous time. Like many of you, I have spent much of the past few days keeping my eye on the confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, a process which our first speaker today is very much a part of. I always enjoy these hearings, although this week's have been, I think, a little bit more absurd than normal. I, I don't know about you, but I find it somewhat frustrating to watch Senator Metzenbaum behave as if he has a greater understanding of what it's like to be underprivileged than Clarence Thomas does. <laughs> Indeed, it's uh, kind of ironic that we are meeting at the same time as the hearings, uh, given how frequently references to this organization and our meetings have been made by Senator Biden and others. I'm sure to the unsuspecting viewers across America, the Federalist Society sounds like some sort of cult worshippers or something. <laughs> And, uh, you know, these questions, Judge Thomas, have you now or were you ever part of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy is kind of <laughs> interesting uh, twist on what we expected here. In any event, let's move ahead. We are honored uh, to welcome Senator Hatch as our speaker today. Given the time pressures on the Senator's schedule as a result of the nomination hearings, we are doubly honored and deeply appreciative of the job that, that he has been doing all week, as, as we have seen. As you know, uh, Senator Hatch has been in the U.S. Senate since 1976. He was re-elected in 1982 and 1988 on the last occasion with 67% of the vote, which I think is the third highest or second highest total in the history of his state. He is the ranking Republican on the Labor and Human Resources Committee and second ranking Republican, of course, on judiciary. As an organization, we pride ourselves on making an important intellectual contribution to the public debate on crucial issues of the day. But there is no question that the work of Senator Hatch, who serves as one of our society trustees, is one of the greatest sources of our pride. I believe that Judge Thomas will be confirmed, and when that occurs, it will be a victory not just for a particular individual, but the victory of an idea that Senator Hatch has been fighting for since he came to the Senate in 1976. The idea is a simple one, and here I quote the Senator. A justice of the Supreme Court should interpret the law according to its original meaning 
and not legislate his or her, or her own policy preferences from the bench. Senator Hatch's contributions to the preservation of the Constitution go far beyond the media dazzle of a Supreme Court nomination. He has fought effectively in the legislative trenches in the day-to-day -day grueling, less visible policy battles that affect our economic and political freedoms. He's been in the middle of every major battle of the last decade, whether it's protecting our right to worship, redressing the wrongs of a criminal code that too often gave more rights to criminals than victims. Senator Hatch has, since the inception of the Federalist Society, been one of our strongest allies. He has been a frequent attendee of our meetings, a constant source of counsel and guidance to our board of directors, and a member of our very important board of trustees. At a time when our elected officials all too often evaluate their commitments to causes and organizations by asking the question, what's in it for me? Warren Hatch has supported this organization, the principles for which it exists, unselfishly and inexhaustibly. Although Senator Hatch has been praised by many throughout his career, I could not help but note a recent statement made about him that serves as a very fitting commentary. Earlier this week in his questioning of Judge Thomas, Senator Biden acknowledged that Judge Thomas was an honest, fair, and decent human being. He also noted that Senator Metzenbaum was an honest, decent, and fair human being, and then went on to say that Senator Hatch was an honest, decent, fair human being. Mr. Biden then said that although both Senator Hatch and Senator, Senator Metzenbaum were fair and decent people, there was no question which one he would want to see on the Supreme Court. Well, Senator Biden can have Howard Metzenbaum on the Supreme Court, but I have no doubt that we would all like to see Senator Hatch there. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in greeting our speaker. Thank you so much. That was a rollicking Federalist Society introduction, is all I could say. Uh, I'd just like to say at the outset how much you people mean to me. I don't know of any legal organization that has had such a dramatic impact across this country as you have had, and you're just beginning. And I don't know of anything that has given us more heart or more courage or more enthusiastic uh, feelings than the Federalist Society. The brightest of the bright, people who are willing to get in there and understand the most difficult of all of societal concepts, and who are willing to get out there and fight for them, and write for them, and work for them, and to be part of the government if necessary. Something conservatives would never have thought about a long time ago. But before I begin my prepared remarks, I'd like to just share with you a few uh, random thoughts on the proceedings, uh, if we can call them that. and the. Uh, just Judiciary Committee that uh, have been going across town this week. As of early yesterday afternoon, when I questioned Judge Thomas, he had been asked his views on abortion at least 70 times. By the end of the day yesterday, the tally was up to 90 question on, questions on abortion, and by now, I suspect that the count may well be over 100. Now, I remind you, as I reminded the committee yesterday, that one year ago, almost at the same time, this very same committee asked Judge Souter a total of 36 questions on abortion. Now, the liberals like to talk about 
disparate impact and imbalances as constituting, as constituting discrimination. I asked yesterday, and I ask again today, why is Judge Thomas being singled out and badgered about abortion far more than Judge Souter, or now Justice Souter? I think this is a very disturbing development. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, he's been asked three times the questions, and that's after saying, look, this is one of the most controversial of all issues, and I really don't want to uh, prejudice my rights to sit on this case in the future or on the cases in the future because they will come up before the court, and I think it would be improper for me to comment about what I personally feel about these matters. Then he went further and he said, look, I really am undecided on this issue. I don't know where I'm going to be, and I have no agenda. But I'll promise you one thing. I'll listen carefully, and I will try to decide these cases in the most fair and honest manner I can. Now, to me, that's the answer. But no, they wanted to press and say, well, don't you agree that the woman's right to choose is a fundamental right under the Constitution? Well, I imagine if he said yes, uh, you can imagine the headlines all across the country. Uh, Clarence Thomas has ruled on abortion. And then they would say anybody that would rule in advance on abortion shouldn't be on the Supreme Court anyway. <laughs> but I personally think this is a very disturbing development and one which the American people are not pleased uh, with. If the radio talk shows are any reflection of public opinion, I think they're starting to catch on that there's something wrong with the confirmation process with regard to Supreme Court nominees, uh, at least lately, over the last 10 or 12 years. And I think it's obvious to all now that despite their efforts to do so, some of the Democrats have not been able to score any hits on Judge Thomas. The American people know this, and they feel this, and the Democrats know this. And it would not surprise me that as the, liberal, as the liberal desperation level rises, we may see uh, questions asking Judge Thomas if he had anything to do with the poisoning of Zachary Taylor. <laughs> or if he was in Dallas in November of 1963. <laughs> or if he had anything to do with the disappearance of Judge Crater, you know. I'm, or if he was responsible for the delay of the release of the hostages in 1980. <laughs> I should also like to remind, uh, you know, the audience that Judge Thomas has been criticized for speaking to this society. You know, which those who hate it have characterized as far-right and extremist. Well, Having said that, let me, be, let me tell you how happy I am to be here with you today <laughs> to speak to this assembly of individuals who, by their presence here, have been jeopardizing their chances for future confirmations if this, <laughs> if this liberal McCarthyism continues. Now, let me get into some of the remarks I'd like to make. Frankly, the society has chosen a propitious moment to explore the link between individual responsibility and the law. In the last month, we've all witnessed earth-shaking historic events in, in what we can thankfully say used to be known as the Soviet Union. As that empire dissolves and formerly captive peoples grapple with the monumental task of establishing limited government, 
amid the human, spiritual, economic, environmental wreckage left by seven decades of totalitarian rule, communist rule. There will be some in this country eager to offer their advice, uh, solicited or otherwise, about constitution-making. Before offering such advice, it behooves us to reflect on the principles of limited government. Individual responsibility, it seems to me, is not only a first principle of limited government. In my judgment, individual responsibility is the first principle of limited government. The framers of the American Constitution had no illusions about human nature because the experience of men taught, and I should add still teaches, that to concentrate government power is to invite tyranny. The framers divided power horizontally among unitary, a, a unitary executive, an independent judiciary, and a bicameral legislature, and virtually between the national government, and, and vertically between the nat national government and the states in the form of federalism. Americans are justly proud of the Constitution and its two centuries of continuous operation. And too often we fail to remember, however, that the framers did not consider the Constitution to be the primary guarantor of our liberties. Publius and the 51st Federalists characterized the architectural features of the Constitution as, quote, auxiliary precautions, unquote, for the preservation of liberty. If the authors of the Federalists saw the Constitution itself consisting of mere auxiliary precautions, what then did they consider the principal guarantor of liberty and limited government? Publius answers in the 51st Federalists that, quote, a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government, unquote. In the 55th Federalist, Publius somewhat offhandedly explains limited government's dependence on the people, even as human nature counsels against dependence on self-restraint by the rulers. He said, as there is a degree of depravity in mankind which requires a certain degree of circumspection and distrust, so there are other qualities in human nature which justify a certain portion of esteem and confidence. Republican government presupposes the, the existence of these qualities in a higher degree than any other form. The Federalist contains few, if any, other references to this, quote, dependence on the people, unquote, for the, quote, primary control, unquote, of the government. Apparently, the sine qua non of a virtuous citizenry for limited government was so self-evident that there was no need for further discussion of the proposition. Whatever their disagreements with Publius about constitutional architecture, the anti-federalists would have agreed with Publius that the whole undertaking was futile if the people themselves were not fitted for self-government. Thus, Professor Forrest MacDonald has observed the framers were guided by the principle that, quote, the extent to which limited government is feasible is determined by the extent to which the people, socially and individually, can govern themselves, unquote. Professor MacDonald puts that more simply for the sake of emphasis. If citizens can behave themselves and make do for themselves, they need little government. If they cannot, they need a great deal of government. Now, what qualities of character in the people did the framers presuppose? Founding-era documents give us a very clear picture. The Virginia Bill of Rights drafted by George Mason and adopted in 1776 provided that no free government or the blessings of liberty can be preserved to any people 
but by a firm adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, frugality, and virtue, and by frequent recurrence to fundamental principles." Unquote. Similarly, the Massachusetts Bill of Rights of 1789, drafted by John Adams, declared that uh, a constant adherence to piety, justice, moderation, temperance, industry, and frugality are absolutely necessary to preserve the advantages of liberty and maintain a free government." Unquote. The Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which was adopted by the Congress under the Articles of Confederation while the Constitutional Convention was meeting in Philadelphia, prescribed the manner for admission of states from the Northwest Territory and is still part of the organic law of the United States along with the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the U.S. Code. As a matter of fact, Article Three of the Ordinance proclaimed that religion, morality, and knowledge are necessary for good government and the happiness of mankind." Unquote. In his farewell address in 1796, President George Washington admonished his fellow countrymen that of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. When Alexis de Tocqueville toured America in the 1830s, he found a citizenry that seemed mindful of Washington's farewell admonition four decades earlier. He observed that in America, quote, everything in the moral field is certain and fixed. Although the world of politics seems given over to argument and experiment, so the human spirit never sees an unlimited field before itself. However bold it is, from time to time it feels that it must halt before insurmountable barriers. Be uh, I thought that was a beautiful statement. Frankly, he goes on to say before innovating, it is forced to accept certain primary assumptions and to submit its boldest conceptions to certain formalities which retard and check it. Up till now, no one in the United States has dared to profess the maxim that everything is allowed in the interest of society, an impious maxim apparently invented in the age of freedom in order to legitimize every future tyrant. Thus, while the law allows the American people to do everything, there are things which religion prevents them from imagining and forbids them to dare. Religion, which never intervenes directly in the government of the American society, should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions for although it did not give them the taste for liberty, it singularly facilitates their use thereof." Unquote. It's a very, very interesting set of comments. After touring America and observing its citizens and institutions, Tocqueville concluded that what made America a singularly stable and prosperous country was not its geographical advantages, nor the particular stru structures of its government and laws, but rather the character of its people which he attributed to their mores. He said, I am convinced that the luckiest of geographical circumstances and the best of laws cannot maintain a constitution in despite of mores, whereas the latter can turn even the most unfavorable circumstances and the worst laws to advantage. The importance of mores is a universal truth to which study and experience continually bring us back. If in the course of this book I have not succeeded in making the reader feel the importance I attach to the practical experience of the Americans, to their habits, opinions, and in a word, their mores, in maintaining their laws, I have failed 
in the main object of my work. And his discussion of the importance of the mores of the people in a free government, Tuckville asked a question which is relevant of us today. How can society escape destruction if, when the political ties are relaxed, moral ties are not tightened? Professor Henry Jaffa answers that rhetorical question this way. In a republic, the sobriety of the, of the citizens replaces the force of authority as the principal source of order. A free, self-governing society more than any other kind depends upon the qualities, the virtues, of its citizens." Unquote. Over the last three decades of this country, we have seen, for a variety of causes, a considerable relaxation of the societal moral constraints formerly imposed on individual conduct. As these moral constraints have relaxed, we have, re we have seen an explosion of social pathologies, which in turn has driven an expansion of government to respond to these pathologies. Proving Professor McDonald's dictum that individuals who are unable to govern themselves need a great deal of government. Take one but very important example, the family. The leading social problem in America today is the breakdown of the American family, or more precisely, the failure of American families to form, or should I say of families to form. One out of four children in this country this year will be born out of wedlock. One out of four. A substantial portion of those will never be supported by their fathers. These children instead will look to the government for support. They will be supported by the government. This fall, the Supreme Court of the United States will hear argument in a case that presents the question of whether a state violates the federal constitution by permitting a rabbi to give an invocation during a school commencement ceremony. I would suggest to you that George Washington would simply be astounded that under the same constitution that he swore to preserve, protect, and defend, such a practice would be deemed to require adjudication by the highest court of the land at a time when many school districts routinely dispense contraceptives to high school students and even junior high students and other, others teach AIDS prevention to preschoolers. In closing, whether or not we offer our advice to others on establishing limited government abroad, we would do well as individual citizens to try to reestablish it at home by heeding the lines of the second stanza of America the Beautiful which, in their simple way, captured the essence of George Washington's farewell address. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. Now let me tell you something. The explosion of government has just about ruined this country. In the late 1970s, I met one of the most important people in the world. Many of you probably will never have heard of this person, and I'm going to tell you about him. His name was Irving Brown. 
And Irving Brown was the international vice president of the AFL-CIO, stationed in Paris. Irving Brown was a little Jewish man who, before the end of the Second World War, went into Paris through the underground and then stayed there thereafter and became the principal antagonist to the communist philosophy all over the world. He's the fellow that prevented the French docks from going, uh, the French docks and the French, French unions from going communist. And he prevented unions from going communist, communist all over the world and became the free principal advocate of free trade unionism throughout the world. He introduced me to Lech Valenza before anybody up here even knew about Lech Valenza and solidarity. And so I've been involved in working to try and help them to get press, presses, paper, ink, uh, the things that they needed to spread the ideals of democracy and freedom for a long time. Irving Brown died a couple of years ago. But he probably did more to help bring about this revolution, this democratic revolution, than any single person that I know. And he was as conservative deep down as any of you. He was one reason why George Meany was so conservative in foreign policy, and I have to say, Lane Kirkland, who was quite conservative in foreign policy. So when I went two years ago, before this great explosion occurred, or no, it, it, it was right after it occurred, a, a little over a year ago, last April, to Moscow and then to Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Yugoslavia. I asked every one of those leaders, wherever I went, I said, to what do you ascribe the sudden thirst for democracy? And almost every time they would say, well, Gorbachev and his perestroika. And then they would always say, and this happened virtually everywhere I went, but if it had not been for Ronald Reagan, Gorbachev and his perestroika would never have had a chance to exist. And then they would say this, and this is just interesting. For those of you who may not like Ronald Reagan, I'm going to give you the rest of it. Then they would say this. They would say, we want democracy. We want to privatize. We want a stock exchange. We want free market economics. And then they'd catch themselves, and I, I tell you this happened almost everywhere I went, among these leaders. They'd say, however, we note a strange anomaly. You people in your American Congress, you seem to be enacting the very same things into law that we're trying to throw off so we can be free. <laughs> and I have to tell you, that couldn't be more true. Now remember when the Civil Rights Act of 1990 came up and we said it was a quota bill and we said it took away people's rights to a day in court and so forth and so forth and we made a terrific case against it. They said it is not a quota bill, it does not do this, it does not that. Now we're in the third change and Danforth would like to have a fourth change and it's still a quota bill and it's still a bill that's going to cause problems. It's still a bill that it's going to make it very difficult for employees in this country to choose the best qualified person for the job without discrimination. And I have to tell you, mandated benefits coming out of the Congress like they're the newest ideas in the world. They're ideas they're trying to get rid of. They're trying to throw off the shackles of their small business people so they can allow them to grow.
Now, the only reason I've gone into all this is because you people are critical, it seems to me, to America. You're the brightest of the bright. You throw the best conferences of any legal group in America today. That may not be saying much, however. <laughs> and you're provocative, and you're helping people to get excited about the law. And you can make a difference. And I'd like to see the Federalist Society expand so that every city in this country has it, every university has it, and that people all over this country can hear at least the thoughts from both sides that you people are very good at helping to bring up in the most intelligent, literate, intellectual sort of ways. So I'm very proud to be associated with you. I'm very proud of what you're trying to do. I'm very proud that you bring people from all walks of the political spectrum, all walks of life, and all walks of ideology into these meetings, and that you listen to all sides. But I can tell you, you're making an impact. As small as we are right now, we're making an impact. Keep it up. You're the people who are giving some of us the greatest hope that we have up there on Capitol Hill. And I just want to tell you how much we appreciate everything you're doing. Thanks so much. Great to be with you.